Welcome all of you to the Come Follow Me New Testament podcast, sponsored by the John A. Witso Foundation. My name is Robert Millett, and I'm joined today by a dear friend, Mark Maddox. We'll introduce Mark a little more. Um, let me just say that this program is an effort to help us to understand the New Testament, yes, but also from a Latter-day Saint perspective, it's an attempt to help us understand how our friends, our Christian friends of other faiths, view some passages of scripture, perhaps the same way we do or differently from us. And so it's an interfaith endeavor, uh, as well as an opportunity to talk about the gospel. And so we're, uh, we're thrilled to, to be able to be with you. Let me read to you for a moment uh, a statement that uh, defines or describes the work of the John A. Witzel Foundation. The John A. Witzel Foundation works to develop leaders and empower Latter-day Saints to be better understand, bet, to better understand, appreciate, and engage with their neighbors of other faiths in communities all over the world. The foundation hosts in-person and virtual interfaith events and dialogues like this one, and also sponsors leadership development programs to support academic endeavors for Latter-day Saints globally. The foundation is affiliated with leading institutions, including the University of Southern California, Chapman University, Brigham Young University, and Pathways Worldwide. What we hope to accomplish in a one-hour period is to give us some insight in, into certain passages of scripture. This is a, a program we'll only have once a month, and so in order for it to be helpful to those who study in Come, Follow Me, we will have taken a few of the things coming month and uh, and address them. Um, let me introduce or have him introduce himself, Mark Maddox, who is the Dean of Theology at, at uh, Point Loma uh, Nazarene University near San Diego. Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, backgrounds, religious backgrounds, etc. Yeah, well, thank you, Bob, and thank you to the John Witsett Foundation for hosting these conversations. It's a real privilege for me to be able to be involved in this process and to be with my dear friend, Bob. We've been engaged in conversations about interfaith dialogue for about the past decade now. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's just great to be able to be a part of this, uh, this podcast. Uh, a little bit about myself. I'm a, I grew up actually in Kentucky. I grew up in a very good Christian family. Uh, I did not grow up in the Church of the Nazarene, which I'm a part of now, but uh, kind of a small a Christian um, denomination there. Uh, since the call to ministry, pastoral ministry, right out of high school, and I then went on to uh, college, went to Asbury uh, University and Asbury Theological Seminary and prepared for ministry. Uh, I was a pastor for about a dozen years and uh, have spent, now this is my 24th year in uh, Nazarene higher education and I find myself now serving as the Dean of the School of Theology at Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego. Um, my areas of expertise is really in the area of, in my field is practical theology. I give a lot of focus on discipleship, spiritual formation, ecclesiology, uh, and uh, think about the ways in which we engage God's mission in the world. And uh, so that, that uh, I married uh, my wife, Sherry, she's a nurse. We have two grown children uh, and we have two dogs. <laughs> Got to make sure I mention them here. And, the yeah, yeah, exactly. They're part of the family. And uh, we've been here in San Diego now for seven years. And before that, I was at Northwest Nazarene University. That's when I met Bob uh, up in uh, Nampa, Idaho. I was there for about 15 years. So again, just a great privilege to be here and to engage in this conversation uh, with Bob. Thank you, Mark. Let me just say to the listening and viewing audience that uh, in months to come, um, we will be have, having a, a co-host, uh, Peter Huff, who is professor of religious studies at, at Benedictine University in Lyle, Illinois, will be with us in the month of February. And then in the month of March, we'll be joined by Craig Blomberg, uh, Professor Emeritus of New Testament at Denver Seminary. And so we'll see these men every, what, three months? That's four months? Yeah, yep. quarterly. And so uh, Mark will be with us today, and, and I'm just thrilled. Mark is a wonderful friend. Yeah, same here, Bob, and thank you. And, and just to add that I am a part of the Church of Nazarene. Uh, 
I'm an ordained elder in the Church of Nazarene, which means I'm a, a pastor in the Church of Nazarene. And uh, the Church of Nazarene, for those who may not know, is connected with what we call the broader uh, Wesleyan tradition, John and Charles Wesley, uh, which has some connections with uh, uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, recognizing the fact that Joseph Smith was a Methodist. And so we have some common common uh, history and heritage together, and that's been a part of our conversation with Bob and other faculty at BYU for the last decade. Well, I had loved John Wesley before I even met these guys, but I really like him now <laughs> because we have read him up the river, haven't we? <laughs> we I love John Wesley. Yeah. Um, my, my background, a little bit about my background. I was raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I uh, grew up in a Latter-day Saint home. Um, my grandfather was actually the first millet to, to uh, join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the 1930s in the New Orleans area. Um, I attended uh, LSU, Louisiana State University, for a couple of years, and then went on a mission, full-time mission, to the Eastern States mission with uh, headquarters in New York, and also worked in uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts. Um, returned, finished uh, a bachelor's and master's degree in psychology at BYU, uh, began work with the uh, seminaries and institutes and was the director of the Institute of Religion at Florida State University. And while there, I, I pursued my doctor's degree in religious studies. And so my PhD is in religious studies. I uh, joined the faculty at BYU uh, in 1983, worked there for um, some 31 years, retired in, uh, from teaching in 2007. And excuse me, 2014. And, uh, but I've stayed busy, uh, especially doing interfaith work, which I love. Yeah, and I think, I think it's probably helpful for those of you listening, that for those of us who are not a part of the LDS tradition, we have labeled uh, that Bob Millett is your theologian. So you know, Bob is a prolific writer. Uh, I've got several of his books, I don't know, 40, 50 books now. And uh, so he's, He's a, definitely a gift to the church and a gift uh, particularly to Latter-day Saints. And uh, I just want Bob to know that, uh, how we think about him and feel about him. I didn't also, my PhD is from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and I did a PhD in uh, religious education. So I forgot to include that as well. So thanks, Bob. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I'll get the check to you within the week. <laughs> Exactly. Kind of remarks. There, there is a sentence you left out, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, listen, um, Mark, we're going to be studying the four Gospels. Mark, what's a gospel? I mean, we hear the word gospel all the time. We speak about the gospel, the gospel of Christ. But what about the gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What is a gospel? Yeah, so the gospel from the Greek, uh, it really is good news. Uh, the, the good news, the proclamation of the gospel. And uh, it's where we get the word kind of evangelism or e evangelical from. And uh, so the gospel really is, uh, and the gospels are really providing us with narratives of the life of Jesus. Um, there's been some, some kind of conversation debate about uh, are the gospels, particularly the synoptic gospels, which would be uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, that the synoptic gospels are really kind of biographical in focus. And there's, there's some debate about that. There's some people who would say, yeah, they're biographical, but others would say, no, if you look at kind of modern ways we interpret scripture and primarily because, um, you know, we don't have all of Jesus's life. As you know, we read the gospels. We, we kind of have Jesus's birth, which we just celebrated during Christmas and we have early accounts of Jesus's life, but then we don't hear anything about Jesus till we see him at the temple when he's around oh, 12 years old or so. And then we don't hear much about him again until his ministry starts around age 30. So it, it, it's not a typical biography. No, no. If, if it is a biography, it's left out a lot of the story. So, uh, so there's been debate about that. And so some would say that it's really more a narrative. Narrative doesn't mean it's not factual or historical, but narrative in the sense it's telling the story uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and giving us the message of Christ 
Um, and we particularly see that in the, the latter part of Jesus's life, which is kind of age 30 to 33, where when we read in the Gospels, we see Jesus's ministry. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, I've heard somebody refer to them as laudatory biographies. Um, you're right. I mean, we don't know what Jesus is thinking. We don't know what color his hair was. We don't know how tall he was, how large his nose was. We don't know any of that. But again, I think it's clear they didn't intend them to be typical biographies. And That's so right, yeah. you say the synoptic gospel, synoptic by synoptic, we mean what? Literally, I think it means um, same look, meaning they look alike. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the synoptic gospels, speaking of the, the similarities between them. Um, what about John? What do you... What do we do with John? It's so very different than the Gospels, of uh, the Synoptic Gospels. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, you know, the Synoptic Gospels are very similar, primarily because they borrow most of, you know, most of Matthew and Luke is borrowed from Mark. And as you know, there is another what we call Q source uh, that uh, is kind of like these kind of unofficial kind of biographical life of Jesus that they're they or sayings, from. a saying source. Saying yeah, yeah, it's a saying source. Uh, so, so John is different in that John is is not trying to kind of lay out uh, kind of a movement to the cross or a timely. Uh, if you if you think about it in more biographical forms, he's not trying to do that. He's really it's more theological in focus. He's really uh, trying to give kind of more imagery. You know, he has the I am statements. Uh, and I think part of the reason John does that is because he's addressing a particular audience of, of uh, early believers that are having a hard time uh, understanding what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so John, John really takes a different kind of different focus there. You know, too, John, when you think about it, we'll talk, we'll get into John briefly. Um, when you consider how many kind of private conversations take place in John. Whether it's with Nicodemus or the woman at the well or with Peter later in the story, uh, conversations between individuals. Also, I, I find it interesting. So often in those conversations, Jesus is speaking on one level and the people are understanding on another. Right. They, they sort of miss his point, you know. Um, yeah, I, I've often thought of John as the gospel of the church, uh, that it's for the saints themselves. Um, yeah. Here's well, well, we're about, there was one uh, church father, Clement of Alexander, he called the, the gospel uh, of John kind of the spiritual gospel. Yeah. And spiritual in the sense that it's not trying to tell you all the events as much as it's trying to tell you this broader story in a kind of metaphorical, symbolic way so that the readers can get it. And, um, you know, we see this so much of contrast in John about we're going to talk about this when we get to uh, looking at the first part of John, but light and darkness, um, people believing, not believing of the world, not in the world. So these are the kind of paradoxes that he's playing with throughout throughout the book. Um, I was thinking too about this. If we take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look at them, I, I read one account uh, of a scholar who said that he, he talked about what what do each of these have that's distinctive to them and not found in the others? And the numbers he came up with is this. About 7% of Mark is distinctive. About 42% of Matthew is distinctive, meaning just in Matthew. And about 59% is distinctive in Luke. And about 92% is distinctive right. in John. Yeah, John, right. John is a story all its own, and you you have a few little similarities with with the synoptics, but basically it's Joseph Smith called them interestingly, the testimony of Saint Matthew, the testimony of Saint Mark, Luke, and John, and so for him, I think I think that's sort of what you were talking about there. They're testimonies of people who knew or knew of the Savior. Yeah, and I think I think with that, I think uh, historically the church has talked about this in the sense that. We have to remember that these were gospels that were written to a particular group of Christian believers. Yeah. So, for example, in Mark, uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of focus on the suffering of Christ. You know, the Son of God suffers, and I think a big part of that is because he's 
uh, he's he's an evangelist who is preaching and teaching to a group of Christians who are undergoing persecution. So we often don't read the Gospels that way. We we think about Jesus's life, you know, but we need to recognize that this was written to a particular group of people for a particular time uh, that provides hope and meaning for them, just like it does for us today. And I've thought, I've thought, for example, Matthew in many ways seems to be the gospel of the church. In fact, it's the only gospel where the word church is used. Mark, I love because this isn't nice, but Jesus always seems to be chewing people that the apostles out in Mark. They're so ignorant. Uh, <laughs> Luke is filled with actually more parables than than Matthew. So they have the distinctives I appreciate. Yeah. Let's go to John. Let's go to John chapter one, in fact. Um what, what uh, translation are you using, Mark? Uh, I have the New Revised Standard Version. Okay. And I'll be using a King James. Okay. Uh, and referring occasionally to some other translations. Yeah, that's good. You'll find mine much more reverential, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> why don't, for example, Mark, why don't you read for us uh, the first three verses of John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, no one thing came into being. Okay. What has come into being? Read, I mean, comment, if you will, on the, the concept of the Word. Yeah, well, uh, you know, the word here really means uh, logos, which is the divine word, which is Jesus. Uh, it's not talking about the Bible as the word. It's talking about Jesus as the person. Right. So uh, this divine logos is uh, recognizing that the fact that uh, it really pairs back to Genesis 1 when we read in the beginning, God created. Mm -hmm. Now here it's in the beginning. Uh, we have in the beginning was the word and the word was with god so there's a sense in which that since the very beginning or even before the creation of the world we have this divine sense of of jesus the person of jesus is with god and the 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 interrelationship between the two um all things were made by him is it let me ask you this, Mark. Is, is it often discussed in Protestantism or more specifically among Nazarenes um, concerning the, the expanse of Christ's involvement in creations? That is a kind of a cosmic Christ. Is it believed that Jesus created more than one world? That's a great question. I don't know if I can answer that for all of Protestants. I was doing that. I was asking because all things were made by him. Yes, I, I know. Uh, yeah, well, I think in, within the, kind of the our broader Protestant Catholic tradition, we would certainly hold that, you know, certainly a Trinitarian understanding of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and that God, uh, God is, you know, one God with three, three essence, if you will, uh, homostasis. And uh, so we would, we would, we would view this as that in the very beginning, when God created, when God created all things, that uh, certainly Jesus was with God because Jesus is the embodiment of God on earth. And so, yeah, it would mean that how many ever planets or earths that we have, possible earths, which I don't know, that God would be the God creator. would be the creator of all things. And, and this passage seems to help us recognize that Jesus is actually present and involved in that whole process as well. Yeah, I was thinking in, in light of that, I was thinking of these opening verses, and you know them better than I do, but of Hebrews. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Yeah. So Latter-day Saints would say he was the, under the direction of the Father, was the executive in the creation. In the creation. Right. Yeah, and this may be a place where our traditions have some differences of how we would interpret this passage. Yes. Um, we might say the word is Christ and he's with God the Father. 
right? For you, you would look at it a little different. Well, you would there always have been a Jesus with God? Uh, yes. Yeah, I keep there, asking you these hard questions, Mark. <laughs> As you always do. Uh, yeah, no, we we would certainly see, uh, you know, as we view this passage, there's a sense in which Jesus is God. Right. And the essence of the word is that, you know, God through Jesus has created all things. So there there wasn't this separation somehow of, of Jesus and God. They've always been together. And, and certainly... We're, as we look at this passage, we, we get into the fact that, that Christ comes to dwell among us, to live among us, the incarnation, which we just celebrated during Christmas. Right. We recognize that by Jesus coming, uh, it is really God in the flesh who's coming to live among us. And uh, that Jesus as a person uh, is both God and human, you know, so yes. um, he suffers the same things we suffer you know, struggles with the same things, but he's still God. I'm, I like this phrase that I, I, don't, I heard once some, I've heard a number of times. He is fully human and fully God. Right. There's no part of humanness that he didn't possess. There's no part of Godhood that he didn't possess. Right. 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 Um, let me see. I'll read verse four. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Mm -hmm. um this light of men what do you what have, what is what would a, Na a nazarene professor view verse forces four and five as meaning yeah. in life and the life was the light of men yeah i think we would view this really as that uh you know john is trying to make a bit of a contrast here between um those who are uh, followers of Christ live within the light of Christ, and there's those who uh, reject or those who uh, choose not to follow this light, and they then are living in darkness. And, and so there's a, I think John does a bit of a, a contrast here that uh, he he wants to show a bit of a conflict between light and darkness, but but notice here that darkness never overcomes light. It's unable to grasp the light. And I think, you know, sometimes when we think about our Christian faith and our journeys, regardless of our tradition, I think sometimes we have this view that there's good and evil that's working and they're somehow equal. And I think this is a good reminder that Christ has triumphed over all things and that uh, while there may be darkness in the world, and there may be suffering and difficulty that we have this kind of, in our tradition, we talk about this kind of eschatological hope, this hope that that we have a, a future in Christ and that Christ is with us. So I don't know if I directly answered your question. I don't know that we really think a lot about, uh, I know your tradition would think more about this in the sense of uh, thinking of, um, sorry, let me look at the passage here again. Um, verse four. Yeah, verse four, that. The, the life was the light of all people. Uh, I, I don't know that we think about it in that way, other than we think about it as it being a, a light to the world and living out a life of discipleship. We would Latter-day Saints would look at this in this sense. They would speak of the light of Christ or the spirit of Jesus Christ. That is, when it says in verse 9, the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world, we would say every person that comes into the world comes with a kind of inner light a sense of right and wrong a sense of important and unimportant um, the light of christ or spirit of jesus christ what we would say is the foundation for conscience mm. uh, maybe even the foundation for reason mm. um, uh, that i heard one uh, i remember stephen covey uh, who taught for many years at at uh, BYU in the Organizational Behavior Department, making the comment, he said, I think what most people call common sense is the light of Christ. Mm -hmm. He said, I think what the man, uh, what uh, what some people called the laws of, of nature would be the light of Christ, the power by which things, not the Holy Spirit that we speak of, as much as an inner light that enlightens every person that, that is born. Uh, that person has the capacity to discern good from evil as a result yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We, might, we might use language maybe around 
thinking of the light, the light of Christ as God has given grace to everyone for everyone to receive. I like that. Uh, it's it's often it's often I've heard my friends, my evangelical friends refer to it as common grace versus saving grace. Right. That is common grace being that which God has given to all people uh, access to and saving grace, that which is required in order to be saved, that yeah. amount of light and knowledge and understanding. Yeah. Yeah. And we we probably wouldn't use, I mean, we use common grace, but we, as you know, we use the word prevenient grace, grace yeah. that comes before that draws all humans to God. And then we can respond to God's grace. Either so before before you have any kind of a conversion experience, you have to be drawn to that. Right. And that, that's part of that prevenient grace. Correct. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Good, Good deal. Uh, let's see. Let's go on down. Um, so why don't you start with verse 11 and go through 14, Mark. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of the man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Um, you know, I was interested as I was just looking through different translations uh, that I have on my shelf up here of, of uh, the Bible. And I was, I was looking particularly at the, the line dwelt among us. Mm -hmm. A number of the translations render it just as the King James does. But I was noticing, uh, and I'll get you to tell me what the NRSV is in a minute, but here's what I found. The New English Bible made his home among us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, NIV, uh, the New International Version, lived for a while among us. Mm -hmm. Here's, here's uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message moved into the neighborhood yeah yeah i remember that one i like that one too i was going to mention that one david david bentley hart a, a, a an eastern orthodox scholar he did a translation of the new testament pitched his tent among us yeah uh -huh. yeah I, I mean it's like he became one of us yeah he was one of us yeah but you know, I, I like i like that imagery uh thinking about jesus kind of moving into the neighborhood and living there you know and, uh, you know, we talk about that in our Christian life, about what does it mean for us to be incarnational? What yeah. does it mean to us to engage our neighbor and our community and our world in the same kind of way? How do we how do we dwell among others and be the kind of light that we were talking about earlier? In, in the world without being of the world. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Anything uh, else you want to say about those verses? No, just the NRSV says, uh, became flesh and lived among us. Uh -huh. dwelled among us uh i think i think it's important this this imagery because you know john's readers are going to be from the jewish tradition and that it says kind of imagery of a tabernacle right oh, yeah. this place where god dwells god dwells in a tabernacle. Did in ancient ancient israel in the in the desert correct yeah and so there's this sense in which it uh, the, the tabernacle was the primary place of israel's worship and so here Jesus now comes to dwell among us. And, uh, you know, that, that dwelling, that incarnation uh, really gives testimony to uh, the fact that God has come and, and dwelled among us. And Jesus now is the Messiah. This is starting a new, really a new eschatological age with Jesus coming in. Good. Um, yeah. All right, well, I, I think that's about as far as we need to go right now. And John, let's flip over to Matthew chapter three. Um, we'll just pick out a few things here that we want to talk about. We're going to, let's pick up with, uh, verses one through six about, about John the Baptist. I'll, I'll read one through six. Okay. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. 
Then when he out, then went out to him, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. How does how does John the Baptist strike you? What do you when you think of John the Baptist, Mark? What do you think of? <laughs> he kind of reminds me of some, uh, you know, person out in the wilderness or out in the mountains, <laughs> or just uh, if you ran into him, you'd be like, wow. <laughs> who is this person uh but certainly an extremist in many ways right you know he was a part of the Essene community and and uh i'm sure i'm sure he would have been, have been intimidating to to look upon uh but uh yeah he, john plays a significant role here in this passage and i think sometimes we uh we often don't see the connection and i think it really connects back to the john passage too you know that john is uh john is the one who comes before uh but john is not the messiah mm -hmm. but he is called by god in the same way that jesus is called by god to come and bring forth the good news so you know he's kind of the the forerunner if we will if you will yes I'm thinking about his role you know he he quotes isaiah 40 there about and, and applies it to himself sent to prepare the way of the lord to make his path straight uh you don't get feeling there's any ounce of fear in, in john uh he stands up to those pharisees and sadducees and just tells them what he needs to tell them um yeah i mean the idea of a forerunner i was thinking as we were talking i was thinking about what what is written in john chapter three um this this beautiful description of john i'm reading john three Verse 26, they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, speaking of Christ, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom speaking of himself, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because the bridegroom's of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. And I think this this one simple verse touches my heart so deeply. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. That says something about the greatness of, of John the Baptist, don't you think? Great. Read one quote that said, John the Baptist has been sent from God, not with God, as yeah. Jesus was. That's a good, good way to put it. Yeah. Good way to put it. Well, let's go back to chapter three and let's look at, uh, shall we look at uh, verses 11 through 17? Why don't you read 11 through um, 15, Mark? I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands and he will clear the threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Can we go ahead? Or let's see. Um, yeah, let's stop there. Um, what's the analogy in verse twelve? Whose fan is in his hand, is the way it says it in King James. What are you thinking there? He will thoroughly purge his floor, gather his wheat into the garner. What are we talking about there? Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a bit of a metaphor there i guess in many ways you know uh and i and it's often been interpreted in different in a different ways historically and it, and it seems to be you know fo focusing on um, um well i'm going to put that question back to you bob okay. <laughs> i thought there for a second so well i was just thinking i was thinking the way the way you separate the wheat from the chaff uh, a kind of a fan as it were to separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, there's a bit of separation there, right? I mean, there's a, and I've, growing up in the church, I'd often hear a lot of sermons about this, you know, that God's going to separate <laughs> the 
righteous from the unrighteous and right. there's going to be a separation between those who are followers of christ and those who are not followers of christ and and i'm not sure that that's exactly what this means uh, but i think i think it is and if we're if we're taking this in the context of, of john's ministry it seems that that john is uh, again preparing the way by saying you know i've come to to preach uh, uh repentance and baptism but there's one coming after me who's greater than i and uh in many ways he's going to be the one who's going to kind of lay the path forward for us i i i've um, i have memories i have memories of uh as a young person listening to older people in our congregation bearing testimony in our monthly testimony meeting uh and how often i heard this phrase from these older people Brothers and sisters, we need to we need to hold to hold tightly to the gospel because one day there will come a day of sifting. Now yeah. I'm a city kid; I had no idea what sifting meant, but it sounded bad, and it sounded like not something you wanted to happen to you. But as as time goes by, you can begin to appreciate that that in our own day we're watching with so many people uh, writing off religion yeah. with a huge percentage. I don't know. I've seen so many different percentages, but a large percentage of the United States of America who have who have uh, cut off themselves, who who've just moved themselves away from any form of organized religion. We call them themselves the nuns. Right. Um, uh, that that's a kind of a sifting in a sense, uh, which 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 makes me very sad. But I I think he's talking about a sifting, like you said. Um, yeah, it's pretty what, it's pretty hard what? language. Actually, right pretty pretty tough uh tough to to take when you read that passage and it is it is it's a separation that's painful yeah yeah and it, it uh you know we all have probably friends or loved ones or people that we care deeply about and we think about their lives and for whatever reason right now they're not living in the light and they have rejected it or they've not received it or they they probably received it but not embraced it so it's it's hard to think about the fact that you know jesus christ is doing everything possible to bring about redemption and restoration of persons and creation and there's people who you know make choices uh that are counter to that and yeah. that's that i think that's a part of the gospel message that you know is hard and you know going back to john the whole gospel of john really is about this sense of um those who those who are following christ and those who are opposed to to jesus's ministry and some of the people that are most opposed to him or don't get it are his disciples and the people that follow him and so i think it's a it's a good reminder for us today yeah i i, I think so too um tell me mark from a, from a nazarene perspective from john wesley's perspective what is the baptism of fire yeah, it's, it's a really good question, Bob. I think historically in the Church of the Nazarene, the Wesleyan tradition, we we would view the baptism by fire, the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, would be, in our tradition, we talk about sanctification, that you can live a sanctified life. And uh, John and Charles Wesley, and during the revival movement of the 18th century, and then the Church of the Nazarene revival movement of the, of the you know, 19th 20th century there was a real focus on an experience of what we refer to even as entire sanctification this place in when your life after you've been saved you you come to a point in which you uh, give your life completely to, to christ you you uh, kind of surrender it all on the altar so to speak and at that moment you would receive a filling of the spirit uh, uh empowerment of the spirit and you know it's not undifferent than like say pentecostals when they talk about being filled with the spirit for them it's more speaking in tongues might be a part of that right. although that's not a part of our tradition it it's uh it really comes from the same uh, kind of from the wesley's understanding of there can be this experience of faith where you receive the fullness of the spirit and the power of the spirit and the key what happens in that moment is that your your motives and your intentions are uh, made more toward love, loving God, loving others, loving yourself, loving the perfect, the perfect love. Yeah, perfect love. That's right. Yeah, you know, um, I think we would agree on on, for example, the, the difference between 
being justified and being sanctified. For us, being justified would be exonerated, pardoned, forgiven of sin, right? Which which can take place at a, at a moment's time. But from our perspective, and probably from yours, sanctification is more of a process that takes place throughout life. And, right. And the process by I remember Orson Pratt, one of the early early uh, Latter Day Saint leaders, said. Uh, uh, when you're sanctified, you come to love the things you before hated and hate the things you before loved. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is the sanctification is the purification of the heart. If, if being justified is a change of one's standing, being sanctified is a change of one's state. Is that, is that, would that be similar to what you would, you would think? Yeah. yeah. I think we would, we would think about it in the sense that we, that there can be a point in time when you are entirely sanctified, that you there can be a particular experience. Uh, the Western tradition has held to that historically, and really for the Church of Nazarene, that's one of our kind of cardinal doctrines, if you will. Uh, but I think most of us recognize that in life that doesn't always happen that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's really more of growing in grace and Christ-likeness that we we begin to give more of our life up to God and to live a life of love. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I think I think, you know, we've I think that's been a point of struggle for us. Um, and you know how this works is sometimes theologically your traditions create certain kinds of experiences, but then you now have to replicate those experiences. And it doesn't always quite work that way sometimes. Yeah. It's yeah. a good way to put it. Um the uh the whole idea of being of being sanctified um uh, it's one thing to be forgiven of sin. It's another thing to lose the desire for sin. Mm -hmm. you know, we have an incident in the Book of Mormon where a, a king, King Benjamin, preaches to the people. And um, it's such a powerful sermon. He's calling them to come to Christ and, and be saved. And, and one, of the, one of the ways they're described is um, he asked the people after his sermon, do you believe the things I've taught you? And the response is, we believe all the things which you've said. And then they went on to say, we have no more, they've, they've undergone what they call a mighty change of heart. They have no more disposition to sin um, whatsoever, Yeah, uh, but to do good continually. So mm -hmm. it's a, I've often said, the natural man, as Paul calls him, wants to sin. The spiritual man of woman, from, from our perspective, is a person who may make mistakes and make sin, but they don't want to. Right. Because the disposition has changed. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And that's that's how we would think about it, is that when the when you receive the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the Spirit, then your your intentions, your your motives are are love, and that you won't be as likely to intentionally choose to do uh, sin or to sin. Uh, that would that would be a difference in our tradition. Say the say our reformed brothers and sisters who talk about you know you sin in word, thought, and deed every day. We would say, well, yeah, we do struggle with those things on a daily basis. But there's, but on a daily basis, we don't willfully do something against what we know to be true, right? And we would refer to that as sin. So so really, a definition for sin for us would be anything that is not loving. You know, hmm. if we choose against love i like um, that i like that let's go uh to um john comes to him jesus says baptize me verse 15 jesus answering said unto him from king james language here suffer it to be so now permit it you know do it for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness then he suffered him look we should love that word suffer and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a, lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Um, what would you say about those verses, Mark? Comment, comment on, on those. Yeah, I mean, certainly Jesus didn't need to be baptized, right? I mean, Jesus is God, and Jesus doesn't have sin, so why does Jesus need to be cleansed from sin? That's what baptism is. Yeah. But Jesus seems to choose to be baptized as a way to affirm his public ministry and really to usher in this new kind of eschatological age, you know. And uh, it, it seems to also be 
you know, the affirmation of God upon Jesus, of his calling and his ministry. And um, it's it, it's a very significant event, I think, in Jesus's life. And just like I would say it is in our own lives, right? When we're baptized, um, you know, maybe we don't see a dove coming from heaven, but <laughs> but I think for us, it is this sense in which we are dying to ourselves, we're resurrected in Christ and we have new life. And it um, it's an important part of our faith journey. Uh, historically, the church has said baptism is the the initiation, if you will, into the church. Uh, this is the the mark of a believer is repent and be baptized. And uh, so, um, you know, when we when we are baptized, we identify with Christ in the same kind of way. You know, some years ago, I, I had some dear, dear friends, uh, uh, rather very conservative Christians. Um, we became close enough to where we would feel comfortable being very direct with one another. Remember, once a friend of mine said, um, you know, the problem with you guys is you don't really believe in the atonement. And I said, well, what do you mean? The atonement of Christ? Yeah. He said, you believe it's baptism that saves you. And I said, no, we don't. Uh, he said, yeah, well, you believe that baptism is essential for salvation. And I said, yes, we do believe that, that certain sacraments or ordinances are, are required. But he said, baptism can't be necessary or Therefore, you're saying that the grace of Christ is not sufficient. Well, we went back and forth over the years, and then we traveled to California together one time to a very prominent uh, evangelical pastor. Uh, we attended his morning service, and, and before he started his sermon, he, he kind of lashed out at a number of people in the congregation who hadn't been baptized. He said, you need to be baptized, and he chewed them out. We got back in the car after, and we're headed out, and it was myself and my associate dean at the time, and then my friend and his associate pastor. We got to talking. And I said, well, okay, in light of what he just said, is baptism essential or not? Um, there was a long pause, and one of them said, well, baptism is necessary, but not essential. Hmm. I said, what, would you tease that out for me? I'm <laughs> having trouble with that. <laughs> And his comment then was, he said, well, we don't think it's essential, but a good Christian would get baptized. How about the ordinances in the Church of the Nazarene or the sacraments? Yeah, in the Church of Nazarene, the broader Western tradition, I mean, we would probably be similar to the statement that your friend said, is that we, we wouldn't say it's, uh, you have to be baptized to be saved, but Certainly, Christians should be baptized. I think historically, the church has said, yeah, that repentance and baptism is always together. Right. There are some of our other, as you know, other Protestant Christians who believe that if you're not baptized, then you're not saved. Yeah. Uh, but we, we wouldn't go that far. And I, and I will say that it's, it's, it's a little concerning that oftentimes in our tradition, we don't see enough baptisms. Um, you know, I think a lot of people don't feel like it's necessary or... You know, but but it is an important part of our faith journey, and um, but we wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily say that it's required. Uh, but it's pretty strong here in the Gospels, right? <laughs> Repent and be baptized. And so, what about for what about for LDS? Would it would you see baptism as being required for salvation? Yeah, I we would we would say that when Jesus is talking Nicodemus and he says, "Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot." enter into the kingdom of God. We would see that as a, a requirement. Um, in other words, we believe there are certain, in this sense, we sound rather Catholic. Uh, we believe in certain essential sacraments yeah. or ordinances, right? Uh, the ordinances for us, um, I, I mean, I, I guess this isn't a Latter-day Saint way of saying it, but I would say, as my some of my friends would say of other faiths, um, it's an outward symbol of an inward grace right an outward an outward manifestation of an inward covenant we'd say uh and i said to my friend no we don't believe baptism is what saves us christ saves us the blood of christ saves us well, why do you baptize because we think that's part of the process of faith. i kind of call it the faith package yeah. uh, if you have true faith in christ you repent and you're baptized you receive the holy spirit you try to live in a manner to keep that holy spirit with you 
And so, yeah, we would say there are essential ordinances uh, and that baptism would be one of those. Yeah, and I think we would use the same language that baptism is, you know, this sense of uh, uh, outward work of inward grace. I mean, that's yeah. that's that's a pretty kind of common Wesley phrase in many ways. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't think, I mean, probably the difference in our tradition and yours is, as we've talked before, you know, when you go into one of your LDS times of worship, they look very similar uh, regardless of what ward you would go to and what right. time of worship were in the Church of Nazarene. I mean, it may look a little bit different, the kinds of songs that you sing or the liturgy uh, and the practices are not always exactly the same. But our, you know, our official uh, doctrinal belief around that would be that uh, you should be baptized, but it's not necessarily required for salvation. I want to read something from uh, Joseph Smith that's interesting. In a sermon he delivered, he said, speaking of in the form of a dove, okay, on this occasion in the life of John and Jesus. He, he's giving praise, first of all, to John. He says, whoever led the Son of God into the waters of baptism and had the privilege of beholding the Holy Ghost descending in the form of a dove, or rather in the sign of the dove, in witness of that administration. The sign of the dove, this is interesting, was instituted before the creation of the world, a witness for the Holy Ghost, and the devil cannot come in the form of a dove. The Holy Ghost is a personage and is in the form of a personage. It does not conform itself to the form of a dove, but in the sign of the dove. The Holy Ghost cannot be transformed into a dove, but the sign of the dove was given to John the Baptist to signify the truth of the deed as the dove is an emblem or token of truth and innocence. Yeah, what, does that, what does that mean, Bob? I don't know. Oh, thank <laughs> you for asking. I think we would say that on that occasion, John baptized Jesus and a dove came down. Was it lighted on John's shoulder or Jesus' shoulder? For us, that would mean it's an indication that the Holy Spirit was present. Yeah, yeah. Which I think you, you would say the same thing. Exactly, yeah. Uh, in other words, it's an outward indication, I approve, or this is good, this is right. Correct, yeah, it was an affirmation of Jesus as his, as a person and his sense of calling and his mission. Yeah, that's good. Let me, let's begin to draw this to a close if we can. I, I'm going to ask this. Um, Mark, going back to our John passage, why is it so crucial? Let's just, maybe by way of summary, why is it so crucial for Jesus to come and dwell among us or to live in our neighborhood or to any of those other things that, that were said? Why is that so important? Why would it be important? We know why it's important. Why would it be important to Jesus, you think? Well, I would think it'd be important uh, for God to send Jesus in order for Jesus and God both to have this sense of understanding of of humanity, mm -hmm. recognize um, what it means to to be in an earthly form, what it means to suffer, what it means to struggle, and I think for us it's it's a reminder that um, you know I think one of the distinct things about Christian faith is that Jesus's life and ministry reminds us that the things that Jesus dealt with and Jesus struggled with uh, it, it it makes it more real for us. It makes it very practical that we recognize that, you know, that Jesus, uh, the things that we feel, the things that we suffer, the things that we struggle with, you know, Jesus struggled with them. I mean, when he when Lazarus died, you know, the shortest passage in scripture, you know, Jesus wept. So Jesus had emotions. Jesus grieved. Uh, he he hurt over the loss of of Lazarus. And so uh, I, I would say, though, that the fundamental significance is that it uh, it provides each of us with an awareness that God has uh, done everything possible to enter into our world and to be a part of our world and wants to, in, in this language, you know, pitch the tent or, or move into our neighborhood or to dwell among us. There's a sense in which by doing that, uh, um, God has become close and imminent. God's not just far away, you know, some God that we think about, but God is very much entwined in the life that we live and is accessible and we can we can have relationship with we can know 
I can identify with. Yeah, I don't think we would be able to fully know or fully identify if if God wouldn't have came in the form of Jesus in, in a human form. I think I think that view of God or that view of religion would be very abstract and be hard to hard to find any connection with. You know that that uh, it's the Hebrew word I'm thinking of used in Isaiah, Emmanuel, uh, God is with us. Right. Yeah. God is with us. This, this is from the Book of Mormon. I'll just read a couple of verses addressing itself to this question of why it was important for Christ to come to earth. He shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. I, I think I think referring probably to that Isaiah language we know as Isaiah 53, right, the, the great messianic prophecy. He will take upon him death that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. He will take upon him their infirmities, their weaknesses, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities succor assist help reach out to um yeah I, I, it's basically what you were saying this is from the book of alma chapter seven in the book of mormon but yeah to um you know one of our hymns uh i marvel that he would descend from his throne on high to rescue a soul so rebellious as i right right uh, that great a great hymn just the idea of christ came to live among us to be one of us right yeah uh, i mean the great one of our hymns we, one of our hymns it says uh he came to earth to be like man almost you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> to be like man almost yeah yeah i was thinking of the philippian 2 passage you know the great kenosis passage where we have this sense of jesus comes and empties himself and i love that phrase I think that's a, a good reminder of that God would be willing to give up himself to come in human form, to dwell among us, to live among us, and then to, you know, not only to live, but then to suffer and to die, you know, um, and um, I think that's another good reminder that, you know, Jesus understands our own suffering because he suffered. Yeah. God's, God understands our suffering because God suffered. So there's a certain identification and understanding in ways that, you know, uh, I think provides us with a sense of care, a sense of uh, comfort to know that um, when you go through difficult times in life, that God is a God of comfort and God of care. God understands our pain and our hurt. God isn't God isn't absent from that. I mean, sometimes it feels like God's absent, right? But <laughs> but God is there and God is present and uh, is able to to guide us through those difficult times of life well let me express my appreciation to you mark for being with us i've had well, a good time yeah me too thank you bob thanks so we'll much we'll be doing uh, this a few times through the year yeah i look forward to it thanks so much to you and the woodson foundation for uh, this yeah. conversation uh those of you viewing or listening uh we'll meet of course uh, early in february for our next uh, discussion. Joining me will be uh, Professor Peter Hoff, as I indicated, Roman Catholic uh, scholar from Benedictine University in, in Illinois. Our, our, um, our discussions will deal with basically with Jesus uh, and Nicodemus and Jesus and the woman at the well. So it ought to be a fascinating discussion. You know, uh, Mark has heard me say this a number of times, and it's just become a, a passage in the New Testament that has become so uh, important to me through the golly, 30 years of interfaith relations, um, where Matthew, where Jesus says in Matthew, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of you. That's very moving to me. It, it, it seems to, to touch my heart in this way, that there's something really good about people of faith coming together given their differences given the ways they may not agree to be able to rejoice in the things they do agree on and i i'm grateful mark that you and i agree on things of, of real substance and that uh, we're able to, to talk about this yeah same here bob thank you and i think this is a good model for uh the current world in which we live where yeah. we we can't seem to uh, get on the same page on much of anything so it's good to be able to talk about things that we agree with and things that we don't agree with, uh, but we're 
part of one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Let me uh, just close for our audience by saying that uh, the Whitsell Foundation is a 501c3 uh, nonprofit organization, and we're entirely funded by the generous don donors and donations. Uh, we, we rely on that. So if and when you feel the need or the desire, we hope you'll contribute. There's no, no money to be made here by anybody. Uh, we're just trying to perform a service. Final thought. There's a, there's a, a passage in uh, the Book of Mormon that I love uh, where Nephi says, we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, that we and our children may know to what source we may look for a remission of our sins. That's why it's so valuable, so very important to talk of Christ so that more and more and more he's a part of what we think, what we feel, what we are. Thanks for watching.